gentleman from Pakistan who ran a, a, a photocopy place, he taught me how to use a computer. And my, my, my wife taught me this really cool thing called cut and paste so I could start writing hundreds of fundraising letters. <laughs> and over the next three years, I kept going back and back to Pakistan. And it was very difficult because I wasn't getting much done. Um, we had a lot of physical obstacles. Um, there was a fatwa. But the main problem was I was doing something that we call in America micromanagement. I had my plumb line receipts and records, and I was determined to get this school built. One day, Haji Ali, the village chief, he came up to me, this uh, beautiful man in the back with a silver beard, and he said, you know, if you want to get a school built here, you need to do one thing, son. You need to sit down, shut up, and let us do the work. And he took my plumb line and receipts. He locked them up, this little earthen locker, along with his holy Quran and prayer beads. He came back and he said, there, everything will be just fine. Don't you worry. I was horrified, but guess what happened? The school got built. And it was an important lesson. It's about empowering the communities. This is a micro scale, but you can also apply this on the micro scale. Um, one of, I think one of the main faults, what, what's happened in Afghanistan originally after 9-11, um, um, is that the, quote, reconstruction policy was centralized and deprovincialized. If you look back in history at the Marshall Plan, which I think was a brilliant plan, and the architects who designed it were genius, but the main component of the Marshall Plan is that it's provincialized and decentralized. It's the opposite way around of how this approach uh, was in Afghanistan, and only recently that has really started to change to really let the people um, be empowered. Um, so I, this is a brief, um, I had a couple fatwas issued against me. This is in addition to hate mail and threats from Americans for me helping Muslim children. And I sought out the advice of Saeed Abbas Rizvi, who's the head Shiite Imam in northern Pakistan. Uh, he sent a letter to the Council of Ayatollahs in Qom, Iran, to seek clarification of what to do with this American who was helping set up schools. In several months, they summoned me into the mosque, and they brought a, a beautiful red box, velvet box, with a letter inside, and it read, Bismillah, Manur Rahim, the name of Allah, the merciful, the beneficial. We reviewed your case in our Holy Quran. Education is encouraged for all children. And furthermore, what this man is doing is in the highest principles of Islam. And also, having studied the Holy Quran, the first word of the revelation to Muhammad the prophet is the word ikra. In, in Arabic, ikra means read. It implores that all people have a quest for knowledge and seek um, the truth. So why is it so important to educate girls? These are some of the uh, reasons, um, infant mortality, population explosion. Bangladesh is a great example. 1970, the female literacy rate was under 20%. Today, it's gone up three times. And Bangladesh is just now starting to reach an apex if you look at a demographic curve. So now I've got some really good news and some bad news. Do you want to hear the bad news first or the good news? Bad news? OK, the bad news is um, in Afghanistan, and some in Pakistan, Afghanistan. Um, last, since last year, about 450 schools have been destroyed, shut down, or bombed by the Taliban or other jihadi groups. Now, what's interesting to note is that nearly all those schools are girls' schools. Now, why do you think a group of men would want to bomb or destroy girls' schools and not boys' schools? Because I think that their greatest fear is not the bullet, but it's the pen. And even more than that, they fear that that young girl goes up and she gets an education, that the woman will be empowered and the value of education will go on in the community. Now, the good news is, I don't have the picture for this, but 
I've spoken in maybe 200 cities in the last year, and over like 150,000 people, and I've asked this question. I'm going to ask you today, how many of you know the fact, I think maybe one person here maybe know it, how many of you know the fact that in Afghanistan today there are 6 million children in school, 2 million are female, and in 2000 there was only 800,000 kids in school? Any of you aware of that fact? That means the number of kids in school in Afghanistan has gone up seven times in seven years. It's one of the greatest increases in education ever in history. And I think that news should be broadcast from every mountaintop in this country. And the, 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 I've only had about 30 hands come up out of 150,000 people that are aware of that fact. And that's, don't you think that's good news? <clears throat> and I think... Um, So I think we should do everything we can, you know, to help. And the reason those kids are in school is not because maybe some of it's because of the U.S. or other organizations. The main reason is because they have a fierce desire for education. And if you ask women in rural areas, you know, I, I tell them, I say, I'm here to help you. What would you like? You'd think a woman would say, I want a good husband. I want prosperity. But what most women tell me are two things. One, we don't want our babies to die. Number two, we want our children to go to school. This is Aziza. She's from the tribal areas on the Afghan-Pakistan border. She's the first girl out of 4,000 people to get an education. Um, when, when she went to first and second grade, the boys threw stones at her. Third grade, teachers refused to teach her. When she got to high school, the, the kids took her notebooks because they didn't want her to graduate. Well, guess what happened? She graduated. She went to two years of maternal health care training. It cost us $800. Um, she started in 1998. Before Aziza started working, she delivers babies and does pre- and postnatal care. Five to 20 women died in childbirth every single year in this valley. So Aziza went to training. She came back in 2000. She gets paid a dollar a day. Not one single woman has died in childbirth in the last eight years in this valley of Charperson. <laughs> so if um, we've got the Holy Quran imploring education, uh, think tanks, everybody talks about education. I even get dozens of letters from people serving in the U.S. military, and they pretty much without exception say, without education, nothing's going to change in this country. You know, we can drop bombs, you can hand out condoms, you can build roads, you can put electricity, but unless the girls are educated, a society won't change. This is uh, Colonel Christopher Kalenda. He's serving in Nare in Kunar province, a very volatile area. He's uh, still over there right now. This is the first email he sent me. Um, last October, and you can read it here, but I think the main point, he said, the conflict here will not be one with bombs, but with books and ideas that excite the imagination towards peace, tolerance, and prosperity. The thirst for education is palpable. Education will make the difference whether the next generation grows up to be educated patriots or illiterate fighters. The stakes could not be higher. Um, I'm just going to, my time is up here. So you this is a armor personnel carrier, ninth grade class in Maidan Shah, 11 kids, they're learning English. 84 second graders going to school in a steel truck container. We salvaged this, this was used to bring over US military supplies so we converted this into a classroom. And uh, the girls, of course, they don't even get anywhere to go to school except outdoors in the mat, but they're still determined to uh, get their education. I bring my children with me to, and family to Pakistan, Afghanistan, it's one of the greatest joys this is a Chunda girls' school that we inaugurated last year. 
it took eight years to convince the mullah there to get the girls in school. So 74, sorry, 72 girls started school there. This year there's 320 girls going to school in Chunda Village. It's a very conservative area. So as far as leadership or achievement, um, uh, also I, I have a hard time giving advice. <laughs> um, but maybe there's four little points I could allude to that kind of have helped me in my life that I've learned from my father. Um, the first is to listen to other people. My father, when he opened up the hospital in Kilimanjaro, he gave a little speech and he said, in 10 years, all the department heads of this hospital will be from Tanzania. And the expats and many of the Westerners, they scoffed at my father and kind of laughed and said, how could you dare say such a thing? So we came back to the States in 73. We got the annual report from the hospital 10 years later, and all the department heads of the hospital are from Tanzania. And even today, they're still from Tanzania. The second thing is, um, when your heart speaks, take good notes. I think it, um, we've need to be more intuitive. Obviously, we have to be logical and linear, but we also need to be intuitive. Most of the best decisions I made in my life were based on my heart or my intuition. Um, thinking out of the box. Um, Jean Herney, a Swiss physicist who first helped me out, um, in 1957, he invented the planar process. As, can I have two more minutes? <laughs> okay. Um, the planar process is basically the uh, prototype of the microchip. So Jean Herney was from Switzerland. He came to the States. Um, he worked with uh, Shockley um, Bell Labs in New Jersey and then went out to Silicon Valley. In 57, he was in the shower and he was washing his hands. And then he noticed the grooves in his hands. So he ran out, this is his story, he ran out of the shower, dripping wet. And in one, le one hour, using college-level physics, he figured out something called the planar process. You can look it up. But basically, it was a way to etch into the wafer and increase the surface area. Six months later, he and seven um, scientists invented the prototype, the microchip. The first time came around to, to uh, pass a, or you say a current through it, circuit through it. He spit on it. It worked. Then he spent six months driving around a Volkswagen bug around the east-west coast trying to get a million dollars to fund this little thing called a microchip. And eventually he did that. Eventually it started Interseal, Teledyne, Fairchild Semiconductors, and eventually Intel. But this was uh, just from a guy using college-level physics in the shower, thinking about how to, you know, thinking of things as three-dimensional instead of two-dimensional. Before the microchip was the semiconductor um, with uh, Shockley, and that's two-dimensional. So it was just kind of thinking out of the box. And the, the other thing is, it's about perseverance and courage. Um, nothing really comes easy with hard work. I've, um, through the academy and through, a, through other groups I've spoken with, you find that one common trait to so many people who've really done something is just, is just hard, hard work, persistence, failure, don't be afraid to fail, and thinking out of the box. So with that, um, thank you very much.